Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 135 interviews in this podcast series, all of which you can enjoy on aarecoveryinterviews.com and all podcast apps. I'm pleased to welcome Martin C. to AA Recovery Interviews, an old friend whom I first met during his early days in the program 29 years ago. Originally from England, Martin immigrated to the U.S. in the mid-1970s, bringing along his predilections for excessive drinking. Insecurities from his earlier life, fueled by fears of not measuring up, stoked his drive to succeed. And for years, while Martin's drinking morphed into alcohol abuse, his rapid ascent in business and lack of consequences from drunken behavior made functional alcoholism a working part of his life. While dodging alcoholic mishaps, Martin rose in the ranks of the early computer industry, and later he started, built, and sold a highly profitable company. But the culture of drinking, both within his company and as an adjunct to its growth, inevitably transformed Martin's rise into a steep decline. As his disease rapidly took control of more and more of his life, the shift from functional to dysfunctional alcoholism became clearly apparent in Martin's life. Obtaining inpatient treatment and ultimately entree into Alcoholics Anonymous, he found the kind of relief and comfort that he had longed for throughout his life. Getting a sponsor, going to meetings, and digging into the steps quickly became the most important aspects of Martin's life and something he could readily give away to newly sober alcoholics. And while the nearly three decades of involvement have had their ups and downs in his life, Martin's desire for sobriety seems apparent to all who know him. It certainly does to me. So, without further verbosity, please enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my good friend and AA brother, Martin C. My name is Martin. I'm an alcoholic. That's the right answer. You got, you're got. you batting a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Howard. I'm going I, home. <laughs> I, I really, I, I'm really glad you and I are having the opportunity to do this tonight. I just saw you a few weeks ago get a 30-year chip in this very room in which we're sitting. And it blew my mind that it's been 30 years that we've known each other. And I think we met in this particular meeting. We did. And um, I'm trying to think back what I thought of you when I first met you. I thought you were really pretty charming. But I think that was the accent. But beyond that, uh, I do remember that you were trying to stop smoking around the same time you were stopping drinking. Did you do those two simultaneously? I did not. Oh. But it was weighing on me. It was. Mm -hmm. So you got sober in October of, what's your sobriety 94. Day? October of 94. Mm -hmm. I celebrated 29 years last October. Oh, was it 29? It was. Okay, I thought it was 30. No. So there I am wrong again. That's all right. That's okay. So 29 years ago, what was going on in your life? Well, 29 years ago this month, I was uh, just very recently sober. I went to see a psychiatrist because I was feeling miserable because Cindy left me. Okay, I had my girlfriend of two years, and she left me because I was cheating on her. Mm -hmm. And I cheated on her because I was trying to sabotage the relationship, and none of it made any sense. But she left me, and I wanted her back, and this was the third time I wanted her back, and she wouldn't come back. So I went to see a doctor, and um, he said, Martin, I think, I think you're suffering from depression and anxiety disorder, and I can treat that. And it lifted my spirits. I thought, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. We had talked about drinking, and I told him that I drank moderately. And um, he said, you know, the, I, a few days in hospital might be to get you fixed up. Would you be willing? And I said, well, I'm very, very busy, as you know, because I'm an important businessman. <laughs> and I have staff and principals and customers. I said, but I'd be willing to do that. So he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll get you admitted and I'll come visit you. And uh, I got dropped off at the Comprehensive Psychiatric Hospital, the psych unit, and uh, you know, to get treated for my anxiety disorder and uh, depression. And as soon as I get into this hospital, I realize I've been hoodwinked. Uh, it was, oh, this was really deep immersion in 12 steps and Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first night I was there, everyone said, we're going to the meeting. And I said, what meeting? They said, well, it's the Friday night alumni meeting. So they have an alumni meeting of a comprehensive psych hospital. I mean, I've, I was an alumni of a college in England, and I've heard about alumni of the... <laughs> 
famous <laughs> universities in this country, but I've never been heard of an alumni of a comprehensive psychiatric hospital. <laughs> but that's what I became. And um, I started to do the meetings, and there was talk about drinking and talk about higher power and talk about all sorts of different things. It was all very confusing to me, but there was no alcohol in the hospital. I still didn't think I was there because of alcohol. Mm -hmm. But I suppose that... Um, I saw other people struggling with alcoholism and drinking and drugging, and uh, they were all, they were all trying, quitting. And uh, as I'm competitive by nature, people said, well, I've got three days, I've got five days, I've got a week. I thought, well, I think I can do that. And before long, I had accumulated some mm. time of not using, not drinking, not doing drugs. And uh, as they say, one day at a time, I, I ended up, here I am, 29 plus years mm. later, having uh, you know, not found the need to use alcohol or drugs. You know, I, I was wondering, when you just said that about being in there and being competitive and everything else, the first thing that people say when they get called on, even in, a, in an alumni meeting, is, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. When did you first do that? At my very first meeting. What did you believe about what you were saying, or w were you just saying it to say it? I was saying it to fit in, I think, because everyone else was saying it. Mm -hmm. I was surrendering. I was willing to say anything. Um, to be part of be part of the community, yeah, yeah. So peer pressure. I don't know whether it's peer pressure. I mean, I always felt like a zebra among horses. I always felt yeah. a bit odd and a bit different my entire life, and here I was trying to fit into a group of people I didn't know. So when people talk about hitting a bottom, they usually talk about something that's happened at the end that makes the decision to go get help easier or necessary or completely indispensable. Uh, you went in for something totally different, mm -hmm. or let's say associated with different than, than anxiety and depression. You found yourself admitting you were an alcoholic, but you were saying it to say it. When did you start believing it? When I understood what uh, alcoholism was, that it was less about drinking and drugging and more about a spiritual malady. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I came to understand that uh, I, needed, I needed schooling on how to live a life uh, more comfortably than I'd been living it. If it was uh, claiming that I was an alcoholic that was going to move me down that road, then so be it. That's what I needed to do. Um, I was listening to people share in rooms about how they were dealing with life's issues and uh, how they were using this program to, uh, to help them take their journey. And... Uh, once again, listened to the similarities, ignored the differences, and um, the power of the group hmm. attracted me. And I've lived under the tent of that group ever since. I mean, we are, we're in this together. Yeah, we are. Mm -hmm. So would you say then that you became an alcoholic in AA by virtue of agreeing that you were one, as opposed to going into AA desperate for change or desperate for something? I think I think both are true. Really? Yeah, I think both are true. I was um, emotionally broken, and it didn't make any sense. This is towards the end. Before I got into, uh, before I went to the psych unit, I was uh, emotionally in absolute, an absolute desperate state hmm. because Cindy had left me. But it hmm. didn't make any intellectual sense because I had wanted her to leave me, hmm. and the the battle between. <laughs> My, my knowledge and my gut uh, just tore me apart, tore me asunder. And everyone around me said, why do you think you need to go into a treatment center? I mean, everyone thinks you're living a great life. You've got everything anyone would ever want or need. Mm -hmm. And I just said, well, I can't go on like this. Hmm. I can't hmm. go on like this. Something's wrong. That turned out to be a journey that I needed to go on. Yeah. And as we talked about tonight, it's by God's grace, nothing else. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Looking back from that point at which you first went into treatment, at what point did you notice that you were having a problem drinking or using drugs, or did you not even acknowledge that till you went in? No, I hadn't really acknowledged it. I didn't start drinking till I wasn't. I didn't drink as a child. Yeah. Um, as a child, to change the way I felt, I stole. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I realized today that that's you know the different things I did to change the way I felt because I felt uncomfortable. I stole from my mother's purse, my father's wallet, and just looking back, I mean, what a dreadful thing to do as a kid. I don't know why I did it, but I do. T today I have a better understanding of why I did it. It was for the thrill. It was for the thrill. 
I drank heavily in my late 30s and early 40s, uh, but I could stop for periods on end. I never really understood the whole concept of the first drink, though. Yeah. That's something I learned in the program, that it's the first drink I had to avoid because whenever I did drink, I drank excessively. Mm. I didn't think it was a problem because I didn't do it every day. Yeah, so you were a binge drinker, so to speak. Yes, and, and drank alone. Yeah. And drank, did most of my drinking alone at home and uh, didn't really think it was a problem. Did the people around you think it was a problem? Did you get any feedback? No. Uh, well, Cindy, Cindy thought that I had a drinking problem, but then she saw me stop for several months because she asked me to, and I did. I didn't have a problem with it. So the thought went out of her head, I suppose. Um, no, people around me didn't question me on it, and when I reflect back and tell them about me, they say, well, we didn't know that. Hmm. We, didn't, we didn't know that you had that problem. Yeah, that's interesting because one of the greatest bases for proving to ourselves that we're not an alcoholic is that we can stop. And then we do stop. We stop for a week, a month, six months, mm -hmm. sometimes years. And then we inevitably go back to it. But that ability to stop becomes the reason why we're not an alcoholic as opposed right. to the underlying reason why we drank in the first place or the underlying reason why we'll go back to drinking once that stoppage is over. I think that's right. And, um, you know, one of the things I heard from Cindy while we were still together when mm -hmm. we were talking about alcohol, she said, here's what someone had told me that you should try and do. I mm -hmm. said, what's that? She said, if you can stop one day a week, one week a month, and one month a year, you're not an alcoholic. And I totaled that up, and that turned out to be almost, what was that, one month, one, one month a year, one week a month, so that's 12 weeks, three months, four months, and one day a week is another seven weeks, which is two months. That's almost six months. Six months. Yes, it's almost six months of the year not drinking. <laughs> and I, did you try I thought, that? I did not try that. Sounds pretty cool, though. It is. Someone came up with that. Someone smarter than me said, if you can do that one day a week, one week a month, one month a year, if that sounds easy, then I started doing the math. Yeah. And I realized that's a lot of not drinking. Well, and alcoholics don't ever, don't ever do that kind of calculation. They don't, they don't see the reason to do it. No. Mm. Uh, so it was interesting that she came up with that. Bless her heart. So you grew up, you grew up in, uh, in England? I did. The culture over there and the other... Uh, British people that I've interviewed and those who I've known in the program over the years, drinking is a big part of just everyday life. What was it like for you? You said you didn't start drinking really until later. Was there drinking around you? Is there drinking in your family tree? Where, where does that start? No, there wasn't any drinking in the family or family tree. Um, I have a suspicion mm -hmm. that my mother's brother, Leon, I have his middle name. That Leon, is, my middle name is his name. He was killed in a car accident just after World War II, and I suspect uh, that he was a drinker. But I don't know that, and mm -hmm. you know, denial runs very thick. I was never told that. But uh, no, uh, I had my mother's sister, I think, was alcoholic, and she, she unfortunately committed suicide. Um, I, think, I think she was alcoholic. But my parents, and there was no, not much drinking in the home, and uh, I wasn't surrounded by drinking. So your mates weren't drinking? No, not really. I mean, in university, we drink after rugby or, or after after football. Um, we, but you know, at university, hmm. I did four years of pretty hard slog studying. Wasn't time for drinking, and uh, you know, I went to a red brick school and it was science and technology, and everyone worked pretty hard at trying to graduate. So, no, I wasn't immersed in the culture of drinking. But true, I mean, there's a pub on every street corner in England, as there is a betting shop. <laughs> right, so, you, right so you've got drinking and gambling in front of you. And I, you know, I had a gambling addiction as well. But fortunately, it didn't. It didn't. I didn't let it take root because I was too financially insecure to let myself piss away whatever I was going to accumulate in the betting shops. So no, I uh, I wasn't part of a culture of drinking. All I can tell you is is that. Um, when I did drink, I drank excessively. I never drank in moderation. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't aware of the effect, but I wasn't, I wasn't really sure. If I, I, I sometimes describe it like this. When I was growing up, when I was young, or even my formative years, teen years, early 20s, I always knew there was something wrong with me. At the same time, I didn't think there was something wrong with me. Does that make sense? Uh -huh. I had sort of like a bifurcated view of myself. Always felt awkward. Uh, drinking takes you out of that awkwardness. You, you just zone out. So I guess you could call it the effect. 
I call it just moving out of a state of discomfort, being in a place of ease, as it talks about in the, in the big book. Were you a blackout drinker? I was. So the negative consequences that might have accompanied drinking on any occasions, did you recall those or did you have to be told those the next day by people you were with? I had to be told. Um, and it was normally about, well, you don't remember that we talked about that. <laughs> you know, that's, the, that's the first one. Um, but, I mean, fortunately or, or unfortunately, the consequences were never that serious. So I, I never DUI'd, never killed anyone in a car crash um, by the grace of God because I did drive drunk on many occasions. So, I mean, I was, I was fortunate that I didn't wreak havoc physically on anybody else through my drinking. Mm. Lots of crazy stuff happened while I was drinking. Did you ever put two and two together with regard to the drinking and the crazy behavior? Start drinking at the beginning of the evening knowing that you're going to do something crazy later. Did you ever give that any thought? Not really. I mean, there was one occasion that I recall that was just unbelievable. I, had, I was with Cindy, and I met her because she was representing one of the product lines that I was carrying as a distributor, and her regional manager was in town, and the vice president was in town. And we were out at, at dinner. And I had started drinking before dinner. Mm -hmm. I always like to get a little bit warmed up before the event. I think dinner started around 7. And while we were having salad, and Cindy was sitting next to me, and her boss was next to her, and her boss's boss and boss's boss were there. And this was a Fortune 500 company I was selling product for. Mm -hmm. Right in the middle of the salad, the room started spinning. Oh, no. So I knew that I, was, I had overdone it. Okay, you know, we tied, try, always tried to titrate my, or, or measure the <laughs> amount of alcohol I was to, to, to maintain. And then you knew when you'd gone over and yeah. you could maybe throttle back a little bit. But I knew there was no throttling back going to happen at this dinner. None. So I'm sitting there, middle of the salad, and I don't know what to do. So this is what I did. I excused myself from the table. So I'm going to use the restroom. I didn't. I went outside. I got in my vehicle and I drove home. Oh, no. <laughs> On my way out of the parking lot of the restaurant, I hit a vehicle in the restaurant parking lot. Uh -huh. And the valets got my number. So there were, I, there were consequences <laughs> to that. <laughs> there were con yes, I just fled the scene. I can't imagine what they thought. I can't imagine. Do you know what the upshot from that was or what the outcome, what happened at the table after you left? I can't imagine. And telling you that story right now, I mean, I'm reliving it and I'm feeling a deep sense of embarrassment and shame and shock that I would do such a thing. Yeah, But I did. But you were drunk. I was. And I knew I couldn't sit at the table uh, any longer, that this wasn't going to pass. I had I'd overdone it. I had overlooped myself. So it would be humorous to you or a third party, but kind of tragic in many respects. Most of our stories are pretty tragic when you take them out of the context of everybody else has the same kind of stories. That, that sounds like a, a pretty serious consequence. Did you end up having to, uh, did anybody file charges or did you just have to fix the cars? What was the outcome? Insurance company was claimed against and fixed the car. And what did Cindy tell you about it? Was she pissed? I'm sure she was, but she was in love with me, so she gave me a pass, I guess. Did you lose the business as a result of that? Not at that time. But um, later on, lost that line, yes. Huh. Yes, did indeed. When you lost the client or when you had other effects from having been drunk or, let's say, even a hangover or blackouts, um, what did you attribute that to? Did you, were you willing to call it for what it was or was it always some other reason? Some other reason. Like what? I don't know. I don't think I put a lot of logical expression into any of the events. I mean, I mm -hmm. just... You got to move on. It happened, and um, I've been pretty driven in life. And it's always about what action I'm going to take to preserve myself, um, accumulate power, navigate life, mm -hmm. look forward, and um, pretend it never happened. I suppose you know denial. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's one of the things that makes it tough sometimes for very successful people in the business world, or in entertainment, or in other lines to stop drinking or to acknowledge that they have a problem because how could he possibly have had so much business success or success in his field if he has this problem? And obviously you, you were very successful in what you did, but you, there was the connection between anything going on in the booze seems to be pretty clean cut. It was. I mean, I was, I was very much driven. Um, 
you know, I put it down to a number of things, but I was very focused on my mission. You know, my mission was to try and be successful in business mm -hmm. uh, above all else. And I was fortunate enough to have a business that was given the opportunity to be an entrepreneur and I wasn't going to lose it, be damned. Whether, I mean, and I drank my way through the business and I missed very few days' work. And because I had this uh, determination to, to make this thing successful. So you were a successfully functional alcoholic. We, use, we say that in quotes, yes, the functional alcoholic. Air quotes, you say, in, in England we say inverted commas. <laughs> inverted, inverted commas, commas is the, is the is what they, well they are they're inverted commas you didn't know that <laughs> no I didn't yeah. that's, that's interesting yeah so you learned something so, so you don't say quote no we say inverted commas we say comma. in inver functional alcoholic inverted commas yes oh my gosh yeah. well, you learn something new every day yeah and trash bin is waste paper basket that, that's oh, your yeah, problem yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, I've, heard, I've heard all those things so there's a good one for you that's a good one I'll have to remember it yes so um, I was functional yeah. so you were functional mm. Were the people around you, were you being enabled by the people around you? Yes. In what ways? They knew that I was drinking in the office, mm -hmm. but they were drinking too. Mm. Uh, not as much as I was. So it was a business culture of being able to drink in the office? Yes. Have a bottle in your desk? Yes. Huh. And you were successful despite that? Yes. Yes, I had talented people who stuck with me I compensated really well and they loved me and of course I had affairs with most of the women because you know the two are interrelated I think all the addictions come together there's no smoke without fire mm -hmm. and um, did those cause trouble they did but we navigated through them I mean I was threatened with the EEOC and some sexual harassment stuff but um, I stuck with them and they stuck with me yes there were many bumps in the road but we were, I, think, I think at the end of the day, everyone in my little business that grew quite large knew we were on a mission, and they saw me a bit like the Pied Piper and wanted to hold on to my shirt tails and just uh, sailed the ship with me. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we had some achievements. Yeah, I recall before you left, because you moved from Houston out to, uh, out to Colorado at some point, I did. didn't you? in 2004 so i was still coming okay. to holy name through 2004 19 so years ago okay yeah. so 19 years yes. ago you had sold your business or or merged or did something else with your business along the way yes we did a, a roll up um and an ipo in 97 mm -hmm. on the on the nasdaq uh, big cap and ran that business for three years as a public company and i was on the board and a, and a chief operating officer and, um, you know, when you do a, you know what a roll-up is? It's when you, mm -hmm. we put, put businesses together to create critical mass. Sure. So we, we've created the critical mass to do an IPO. Um, but we've got, we've got all of the previous owners of all those businesses that rolled up now trying to work together. Mm -hmm. And the vision that I had, that a few of us had, never got executed as part of the business plan. Mm. It was really frustrating. And So who called the shots? Um, it was it you? Um, that's really what I want to know. I, I was the visionary, mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't in charge of executing the business plan. That was more, of a, more like a group thing. And when you become public, um, everything changes because there's a lot of pressure, pressure on you for growth where I, was, I thought that we wouldn't do well with growth, that our mission should be in value. And uh, the, the two just didn't work out. And in 2000, I just threw the towel in. And um, through a number of machinations, I left the business. I didn't become a dot-com millionaire, but I, I got out alive and retired for the first time. How long did you stay retired? A couple of years. And I started playing with real estate and ended up with another business. And <laughs> I just retired for the second time, just yeah. recently. Mm -hmm. What kind of patterns did you notice over the years uh, with, with regard to your drinking and when you would drink and how you would drink? Were there patterns to that along the way? No, I mean, I, I, think, I think what happens is, is that the body, the mind, the soul gets used to the effects of alcohol yeah. and the fact that you can take yourself to another place where you're not present and not dealing with your own demons. And I think that I just got attuned to that. It had nothing to do with any success or particular failure. It just sort of became a habit. And also, um, I found out that I was 
you, you would call it blacking out and you know, a lot of us call it falling asleep. And I found out that I wasn't able to sleep without alcohol, mm. that I was an insomniac. So there were some other reasons that I kept drinking. It was for sleep. And of course, I've been an insomniac ever since I quit drinking. So I've had to be medicated for sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what happens with alcohol is it damages the, the neurons in the brain and you just don't relax anymore because you're so used to being stimulated and then being alcohol intoxicated that the system suddenly starts working differently. Well, blacking out is a different type of falling asleep. It is. The blacking out is quite different. <laughs> yeah, it is quite different. So sometimes messier too, right? I wasn't. I was never messy. I mean, I'd wake up in a chair drooling, and then I'd go <laughs> take myself upstairs and sleep the rest of it off, and uh, get up and go to work. So, mm-hmm. how long did you stay retired between the first time that you left the IPO till you started back with real estate? Oh, not long. A couple of years, probably. Yeah. So, were you the retired guy with the carpet slippers? Uh, basking in the sun, or were you always going after the next vision, so to speak? Yeah, always going after the next vision, trying to fix something else else out. Definitely. And I still am, sadly. Sadly? Mm-hmm. Why sadly? Um, why sadly? Because I'm not allowing myself, I'm not giving myself permission to really do nothing and just sit and appreciate the fact that I'm free of obligation right now. Mm-hmm. And having to provide customer service on a daily basis, and um, part of me is just driven to produce. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that part that's partly you know genetic DNA and partly family of origin. What what happened in your family of origin that would have made you that way? I watched my father die very young because he was broke. I believe that's what that's why he died because he was just stressed out. Um, they had a business, he lost his business, and in his 50s he had to go out and work for someone else. And uh, my mother was very demanding on him, and, we, and us kids were demanding too. We always, I remember I was a very demanding kid. You know, I want, I need, get me, can I have? Yeah. I don't know whether that's abnormal or normal behavior, but I think my father got worn out, stressed out, and he died at 55. From, I watched him die for, for a year with very bad form of cancer. Mm-hmm. and just watched him diminish into nothing in a year. And I think a voice off, fired off inside of me that said, that's not going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let that happen to me. Mm-hmm. So you know, I've been very focused on trying to build a financial platform for myself, and which, which is sad in some respects because it creates a life that is so unbalanced. Well, and isn't it possible, too, that your dad could have done all the things that you've done and still died at 55 from cancer? It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. He used to say something to me that that I think about a lot. He used to say to me, son, it doesn't go to your boots. It doesn't go to your boots. Mm-hmm. What did he mean by that? I think he meant by that that um, you know what you take in doesn't go to your boots, that it affects you, that you have to live it. Mm-hmm. Stress, mm-hmm. anxiety, worry, fret, anger, mm-hmm. all of it. And uh, he was a great he was a great man, great father. It's, I, I feel sad that he didn't know me as an adult that didn't just want things from him. Yeah. How about your siblings? How many siblings have you got? Sister. Your sister. Mm-hmm. How, how did she get along in the family and how did you get along with her? I'd rather not talk about it, okay. truthfully, because people are going to listen to this podcast. Oh, that's funny. And, um, yeah. It was, it, was, it was difficult growing up with her in the family. Yeah. She was, she was difficult and created... It created a difficult childhood for me, and I had to compensate for the stuff that she did. Yeah, I had a sister like that, too, where my dad could never quite figure out how to punish us individually, so he'd always punish us together. Mm -hmm. So if she'd come in and break a toy of mine, he'd punish both of us. We'd both get hit Mm -hmm. because he he couldn't figure out how to say one party was right, one party was wrong. And uh, that's a resentment that, I dealt with along the way in my program, but you can deal with it, but that doesn't mean you're going to have a, a strong, loving relationship with that person anymore. No, and um, that's right. Yeah. Um, and and it, we, we have this internal battle, right, of family of choice, family of chance that we talked about tonight, and this thing that you have to love your parents and you have to love your siblings and you have to love your cousins, 
but there's a lot of rotten people in this world and you may just be unfortunate to be related to one of them. Yeah. And how what is love in that context? I just don't know. Well, to me it's to, to me it's like these are people who I'm obligated to be around that I would have no other business with were they not related to me. That's exactly how I feel about it. Yeah. And so I have, you know, a compromised relationship where I'd rather have some sort of relationship than none because with none, the tape plays in my head that says, why do you have no relationship with your only sibling? Yeah. And I can't shut the tape off. Yeah. So I'd rather have something even though there's deep-seated resentment yeah. from the other side and I feel it uh-huh. on all our interactions. Yeah. always feel like I need to take a shower afterwards. Mm. And um, it's uncomfortable. But I've learned that there's many brothers and sisters who have the same relationships, many brothers and sisters who don't talk to each other. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book. 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. When did you first come to the U.S. from from, uh, Great Britain? 1975. And you were how old? 26. What made you want to come to the U.S.? I didn't necessarily want to come here, but I'll I'll give you a little bit of background. Uh, So dad got very sick. Mm. Uh, I had had one of these uh, unusual covert relations with my mother, and there's a lot written about that. And if you go down the, the halls of books in the self-help sections of the bookstores, <laughs> which have grown bigger than fiction and nonfiction combined today about, you know, relationships with parents. And I had my, my mother used to talk to me a lot about my father and, you know, complain to me and I would support her. She, I was like her second husband. You know, our relationship grew that way. And as my father got sicker and sicker, she needed more support from me. Mm. And when he passed away, uh, which I think was 73, was 73 she ripped that my home away. She found another man because I understand why she did, because she, she felt very lonely and mm-hmm. insecure because my father, once again, had left us with very little except his life insurance. And uh, she sold the family home and just told me to go find a place to live. Wow. And we lived in London, and it's not so easy to find a place to live in London. Mm-hmm. So, so part of me was very, very angry, mm. very, very angry at family. I felt let down. In retrospect, they were all doing the best they, they could, and I know that. The program has taught me that. That's all we all do, truthfully. If we're not in a program, we do the best we can with the tools we've been given. But I was pretty angry, and uh, I did find a place to live. Uh, I lived in a basement apartment of a, some of a car mechanic's place in Hampstead in, in England. And during that time, I met this gal from New Jersey, mm-hmm. and... Uh, we had a pretty good relationship. She was doing a year away. She was at University of Syracuse. She was doing a year away in, in, in England, in London, for, uh, for doing photography. And we hit it off and had a good time. And next thing you know, I came to the United States to meet her family. And the family fell in love with me. And I liked the family <laughs> in New Jersey, a nice Jewish family. <laughs> That's great. And, uh, and she was a lovely girl. And uh-huh. we, then we wanted to travel. And the father said, well, you can't travel unless you get engaged. So I said, OK, we'll get engaged. So we got engaged. And traveled around the, the country and uh, the day we got engaged I remember standing at the window in, in, in their house in the family house looking at the window saying what the hell did you just do <laughs> I did I did I remember looking out through the shut, shutters in the bathroom thinking Martin what what on earth I'm going to use my good language here because I know you're going to edit I said what on earth did you just do I was I just scared the crap out of myself anyway so I went back to England after that trip and we're engaged and uh, her father Went to, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. They were a wonderful family. The short story is, is that they assisted in my getting a green card. It took about a year to come back to the United States mm-hmm. so that I could start a life in the United States with, with Alice and um, get married. 
And I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. I was waffling and I hadn't been faithful to Alice. Mm -hmm. And a year went by and, you know, all of a sudden I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to come here. I wanted to want to stay there. This It was like in the fall of 75, there was this massive rainstorm in London. I mean, one of those torrential rains like Harvey was here. Yeah. Unusual. And it was in the fall. So all the drains had leaves in them from the big trees. And I think I told you I had a basement apartment. Yeah. So, of course, it flooded and I lost everything. So I looked up at the heavens and I said, okay, God, I get it. <laughs> and a week later, I was in New York. I quit my job, sold my car, mm -hmm. cashed in everything I had. I came to this country with about, I think, five or $600 mm. and the clothes on my back and a new suitcase. And that was it. And I got to the airport in New York and Alice greeted me and she said, you need to go home. I said, what? She said, you need to go home. I've met someone. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. I said, I can't go home. I don't have a home. I've sold everything. I quit my job. I can't go home. She said, well, you can live with my parents till you find a job. Mm. But we're over. It's actually not the last time I saw her. I saw her one time since then. So I, I did. I moved in with her parents in Boonton, New Jersey. Had she just given up on you? Yes, because she knew I'd given up on her. She, I had worn her out, Yeah. just like I wore Cindy out. Were you drinking around her? No. So alcohol or alcoholism had really nothing to do with that. Well, the ism did. The fear. The fear of commitment. The fear of making a mistake. The fear of missing out on something better. All those fears. Mm -hmm. um, the fear of going down like my father because Alice would be too demanding. Just nothing but fear. As you know, Howard, you know, fear is one of the lowest common denominators of what bothers us. It's our low self-esteem that translates to fear that it can often manifest itself as anger. Sure. So, so she was through with you. She was through with me. So I moved in with her parents, and they were once again wonderful people. And I found found a job in a godforsaken part of New England and moved. Uh -huh. And her father Barney co-signed a note for my first car that I bought down there, a Pontiac. And I moved to New Hampshire, and I, my journey started. I said to myself, you know, I can probably take this country by storm. I'm a smart guy. Uh -huh. I've, got, I've got the accent. And, and I can do it. And uh, my thesis was incorrect. I did not realize how competitive everyone was in the United States and how hard everyone worked and how driven everybody was. This was in the 70s. You hadn't become how you were in business until after this time when you first came to the United States. Oh, right. No, I, I thought that, I, that the corporation, the mothership was going to take care of me. I was going to be a corporate individual who was going to stay with a corporation for his entire life, get stock options, pensions, and the rest of and it. And not have to work real hard. And maybe not have to work real hard, yes. Yes, because I had worked for government in the UK, I worked for the Ministry of Defense, where we would work maybe three or four hours a day, you know, <laughs> get in late break for tea at 10.30 in the morning, clock come turns to noon, go to the pub, it's been the tub pub till about 2, 2.15, look at your watch. <laughs> should I go back to the office or should I take the tube home and avoid the traffic? <laughs> right. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah. That was the work ethic. And then I got came to this country and I'd look at my watch at five and start to walk out the door and my boss would say, where the hell are you going? And I'd say, and he said, no, we got, we got a couple of meetings tonight, we got to do this business plan. You probably won't get out of here much before midnight. And I couldn't believe it. Mm. I mean, it was slave drivers, but... I learned once again that my thesis was broken. Hmm. You were willing to acquiesce to their way of doing things to the extent that it became the way you did things. Didn't have a choice. Yeah. Didn't have a choice. It's what I needed. And I've always been fortunate in my life that even in England and in England before, I've always had really good bosses. Yeah. I've always worked for people who, who were actually pretty good. Never had a really bad manager slash boss. Uh-huh. And they all taught me something. And my five years up in New England, I was surrounded by, you know, I was, at, I was in, up there for the birth of the mini computer industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is almost like Apollo. In fact, there was a book written by Stacy Kidder, The Birth of a New Machine, yeah. which I was part of, which was the first 32-bit mini computer. Yeah. And I was surrounded by people. They were all, you know, MIT or RPI graduates. A lot of them had Harvard MBAs in business. They were really smart really good at what they did. And I learned a lot from them. I, I really did. This was like graduate school for me. So I was, I was swimming in a, in a pool full of sharks. Did you feel uncomfortable in that environment? Or how did you fit in? Just having to reflect back, Howard, and, and remember what it felt like. I still was often tardy. Yeah. Clocking in for work. 
um, didn't get called on it. You know, the English accent carried me quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a math and stats graduate. Yeah. So very good with numbers. That that carried me. So they overlooked. They did. They overlooked some of my shortcomings, uh, some of my personal issues that I brought to the table mm-hmm. and uh, absorbed me. Hmm. And they gave me lots of chances. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't very good at my job, but I learned skills. I was given way more responsibility than I should have been given. But that's the nature of how things were up there. Was, everything was happening very quickly. Yeah, right. In a new industry and a new technology, you were on the front end of all this. I was. This was we called it the bleeding edge. Right. And um, I was given massive responsibilities that I was ill-equipped to handle. Probably cost the company millions of dollars. Mm in terms of bringing product to market that wasn't ready <laughs> and trying to you know, uh, get it resolved in the field, mm-hmm. you know, post-sale rather than pre-sale. Uh, but I got a great education and, and a skill set about business. Did alcohol interfere with, uh, with that job? No. So alcohol still wasn't a real problem? No, it wasn't. I was up there five years and I was looking for a promotion. I wanted to be a manager like those other guys that got promoted <laughs> around me. The director of the marketing division I was part of told me, well, if you want to go any further in this company, you've got to go carry a bag. I said, what do you mean? He said, you've got to be on the front line meeting customers, making sales. Mm. I said, well, if that's what they've got to do, I'll do it. He says, where do you want to go? I said, well, I'm, I'm fine in this Boston area. I just bought a house. He said, no, no, you've got to go develop a territory. He says, why don't you come see me next week and tell me where you want to go and it was a bit of a shock to me that they wanted to relocate me. Mm. But I think they decided it was time for me to move on. What's interesting is when you're in a head office and you see salespeople come to head office from all over the country with their big accounts, mm-hmm. you, you typically see the successful salespeople. Right. They represent, you know, I found out later on, they only represent like 2 or 3% of the sales force. If you've got, you got 2,000 salesmen, you'll see 50 go to head office. They're, they're, sure. they're the guys doing all the business. The rest are a revolving door. Anyway, I told Frank, that was his name, uh, after giving deliberation, I thought, I'll I'll go to South Florida Hmm. because I'd been down there on spring break, Fort Lauderdale area. And and he said, okay, here's your tickets. And they said, Houston, Texas. So I got transferred to Houston. Even after you told him you wanted to go to Miami? Yes. Yes. He says, no, you're going to go to Houston. And I had been to Houston. I'd been through Houston a few times. Uh, Houston I never liked. Um, it was always raining and thundering and hot and humid and dark and miserable. Never wanted to come here. Hmm. But I got transferred here. As a new, a new green salesman in the Houston sales office on West 34th Street in Houston Yeah, in 1980. And I got here on July 4th, 1980. <laughs> it was the hottest summer they'd ever had. Welcome to Texas. <laughs> and Houston was crazy back then. Yeah. I think people, the, the auto industry was on its feet. Every, there were more Michigan license plates down here than Texas. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. I, I moved mean, down here in 82, so I came kind of at the tail end. On the end tail end of that, just before the oil bust. Yeah, you got before, before bust, It right? just busted in 83, 84, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. So I got to Houston, and, uh, and once again, I thought, I'm going to set Houston on fire, and I'm going to sell so much stuff, and I'm going to be a superstar. Well... 18 months into it, I was on probation mm. for producing nothing. Mm-hmm. Hadn't sold anything. Yeah. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, I thought this was going to be easy. It's not. That happened to me too, actually. It happened It happened for me a few years later. It was in the 80, about 84 when it happened for me. When I was working for uh, a technology company in sales and... Uh, it, it was so early in the technology that, get, you know, getting people to even understand how it worked. And even if you could sell something, they were still building it as they were creating it up to send it out to people. And uh, 18 months, I was there 18 months. And then they put me on probation, which basically said uh, performance improvement, which is an unrealistically hard thing to, it's basically so you make the decision to, uh, to take off. Well, what happened with me was, which is really interesting, that Mm -hmm. it was almost like a moment of clarity, similar to when I got into the program. But it was something along the lines of, Martin, what you're doing isn't working. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really figure it out, but something changed in my approach to what I was doing. And 
the branch manager handed me an account, an existing account that was about to do some business. Mm-hmm. And uh, I closed some business. Mm-hmm. This was the first sale. It was like almost two years. And uh, my draw, they gave me a draw for the first two years, which was coming to an end. Uh-huh. So I'm now almost on straight commission and a tiny salary. Uh, what happened was a little bit of success caused me to rethink my approach. Mm. And a little bit of success turned into a little bit more success. And I became more um, direct in my approach to customers mm-hmm. and became more time efficient, got more honest with people. And I started closing new business. And on year three, I ended up on the stage in Atlanta at the national sales meeting as the company's new business leader among 2,000 salespeople, mm-hmm. having closed six new accounts in a year, which is a lot for these high-ticket items. Mm. It was extraordinary. And I'm in the Million Dollar Club, which is a very, very lofty club to be in. You did that in one year? I did. That's amazing. I did. I got a little bit of luck. I just developed a skill set of being straight. I don't know. It's kind of magical. Of course, it went to my head. Right. I ended up getting fired a year later because they doubled my quota. (laughs) (laughs) And I I thought, well, I want to work less and get more. Arrogance. So this is 84, so we're talking about until you got sober, 84 to 94. So for the next 10 years, what were you doing? So I was out of work for a year. I interviewed with lots of companies because I thought they were going to hire me on the spot because everyone must know of me because I beat Wang to that deal. I beat digital equipment to that deal. I beat prime computers to that deal. I must be, everyone must know I'm the hot guy in town. Yeah. They're going to want to hire me. And I interviewed with all these companies. They weren't interested. They want to touch me huh. because I was... I guess so arrogant. I was trying to do to these recruiters what I did to the customers, you know, sell them so hard. Um, I was out of work for a year and I discovered cocaine during that year. Mm. Were you still drinking as much as you had or did that increase? I was not drinking that much. I discovered cocaine and I was partying and... So you started your own business... In 86. In 86. Yes. And you ran that until... We did the IPO in 97. 11 years. Started in my bedroom, in my spare room in my house uh, near the park. Had two employees working in that bedroom. Uh And I was on the road all the time. And then uh, opened up a uh, distribution center and uh, built it. Hmm. I was the, you know, sales manager, the bookkeeper, the accountant, the CEO, COO, purchasing manager, accounts receivable clerk, everything. Hmm. I mean, wore every hat under the sun. And I was driven. And was fortunate enough to be able to hire people who saw saw the vision. What kind of skills or attitudes or thinking did you acquire during that 11 years that served you in AA? And which things were counterproductive? The things that served me in AA that I learned in business? Not much. Hmm. Not much. I mean, AA is a, a program where we really want to try and achieve emotional sobriety which is more to do about action than is about thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me a long time to to work the semblance of a program that's helped me achieve some semblance of emotional sobriety. Mm-hmm. I don't think much of that came from from business. I mean, I clearly I, I was fortunate to be born with a reasonable brain and got a really good education. And so... You know, I have a lot of wisdom, but all the men in this room have a lot of wisdom. One of the things I've found with most of the men I've met that come from any background, even if they were, you know, ex-felons, they're really smart, really smart. And, but, and that's why we reach bottom, I think, is because we can't figure it out. We're so smart, we figured everything else out pretty much in our lives, but we can't figure this out. Yeah. And this demon drives us to the, into the bottom, into our grave or AA. So by the time you hit your bottom which was going to that psych unit, you still financially were well set up. Yes. Things were still going okay in your life? Yes. Okay. So you get yeah. into AA after you get out of treatment. What were your first weeks and months like in the program? I'm not talking about associated with the psych unit now. I'm talking about meetings on the outside. Did you start going immediately? I did. And what was it like? Well, you were, one, you were one of the people that met me in my first week. Yeah. I mean, I came to Holy Name, and this became my home group. 
you know, I only came here because it was called, it was called the Investors Group, right? And I, <laughs> I thought, I thought I might pick up some tips. <laughs> yeah. I thought these guys must know stuff. And I got in here and, you know, I saw CEOs, COs, accountants, attorneys, lots of attorneys, and people in suits and ties, people like you, mm -hmm. people who are very eloquent. And I thought, hmm. I, I, I felt at home and at ease in here. I felt challenged whenever I was asked to share because I was always comparing what I was going to say with what I heard other people say and never felt that I was a free speaker. I was a, I was a thinker trying to calculate what to say. So you were, you were speaking through your head and not through your heart. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, I, and I know that that, that, that that doesn't touch anybody. Right. I know that nobody's touched by my thoughts. They're only touched by what comes from inside, from within me. And, and if you want to touch people, you have to share what God wants you to share. It's just like when you're sponsoring people. You know, the words come out of your mouth and you think, did I just say that? And God says, you're actually talking to yourself when you're talking to him. And these are words that I want you to use in your own program. So, um, yeah, this was where I found myself at home and I found a, a group of men. You know, Philip was, one, was an important member and Greg M. and Alan and Ben and... You and uh, Jim M, who I understand past, and people know that, yeah. and Chris and and John and I mean, it, I I remember the names. And typically, I don't remember people's names, but I do because they were all important to me. I get that. And so, you know, you fall into your family of choice. And when you didn't have a family, of, a real solid family of chance, or it disintegrated, or you have mixed feelings about it, family of choice becomes more important to you. It's just as rich of an experience and even more meaningful in many ways. It is more meaningful. Now, did you get a sponsor when you first came in? I, I did. I had several start, what I call startup sponsors. <laughs> startup sponsors. And they d didn't work out really well. Mm -hmm. But uh, Philip started calling me from in here, mm -hmm. Philip L. Yeah. He, he called me a lot. And Philip, Philip was one of the first men, God bless him, you know, he died a few years ago. He, he was one of the first men who told me he loved me. Yeah. And I have to admit, I felt very uncomfortable at the time. He used to say that a lot. I felt very uncomfortable because I don't, I don't even know if growing up in England whether we used that word in our family. I don't know if we said I love you to our parents or our parents said that to us. I don't even remember that we did. Not because there was something wrong with the family, but England... I think it's just people are very stiff upper lip and um, inverted commas. <laughs> That's for you again. Very <laughs> Philip said he loved me. Philip told me he was going to be my sponsor. Huh. And Philip was my sponsor for, I guess, about eight years, wow. I suppose, and took me through the steps. And he and I stood right, kneeled right here. Was there, was there a, was it in here? Chapel next door. The chapel. We were in the chapel holding hands. I held hands with Philip, which also felt uncomfortable, and did the third step prayer, which I had learnt, which I found very difficult to learn, but I learnt it. Yeah. I mean, Philip was very challenged in his life, but one thing he wasn't challenged about was doing service in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was service oriented and uh, he, he, he wasn't able to manage the rest of his life. And I know lots of other men that don't manage the rest of their lives. When it comes to life management, you know, I'm at the right end of that scale, right buffered up against the end where you can't go any further. And I know a lot of men who are at the left end of the scale, buffered up where you can't go any further. I'd like to be right of center and not right where I am, which is, you know, hyper-vigilant, hyper-focused on that end of the scale. But nevertheless, that's where I find myself, hopefully in retirement, inverted commas, I can... Uh, I can work on that some and just, and I think gratitude is a large part of that. Were you doing mostly men's meetings or were you doing mixed meetings? Men's meetings. Oh, I, do, I went to Friday nights, which was mixed. Uh, Spring Branch Club is where I, is my home group now, Thursday nights, men's. But I've met some great men in there who do service like you've never seen. And they reap the rewards like you've never seen. And it makes me look at my own inadequacies, truthfully. And we know that we're our own worst critics. Have you been inspired by that to the extent that you're doing some of that as well? Yes. What does that look like? Well, I've been doing a lot more meetings. Mm -hmm. I'm making you know, at least three phone calls a day to men in the program, touching base. 
you know, I, I realized that, I, that that's what it's going to take. I have to get reimmersed. You know, I lived in Colorado for 14 years mm-hmm. in a remote mountain town where there was good recovery, but it was the same people all the time in the same meetings, small groups. And I think one has to broaden out. Like I was, at, I led at the uh, new treatment center. Mm-hmm. So I've been going out there last last week. Um, my sponsor asked me to lead, and I led out there, and it was a really good meeting. And uh, Kevin, who who was in here, you know, went through there, and I saw him tonight. He was, seemed to be very happy to see me, and it was nice. It's always nice when people smile. And yeah, it's nice to come back here after so many years and see all these faces and people who haven't seen me in ten years recognize my face. So there's two things about that, right? One, it's nice. It's nice to know that people care about you, and two. It's nice to know you haven't aged to the point that your facial features haven't changed profoundly that people don't recognize you anymore, right? that you haven't shriveled up. <laughs> and the fact that so many of the men that you and I knew 20, 25 years ago, a lot of them are gone yes. and, and they still had a profound effect. Yes. When you look back at your time in AA now, can you identify any times in particular where it might have been easier to drink than to go through what you went through? You mean, are there times where I thought of relapsing? Yeah, or were there times that were particularly tough that had you not the kind of program you have, you might not have gotten through them? Yes. Could you unpack a couple of those for us? It's, um, it's romance or finance. I mean, those are the terms that we hear in here. Yeah, it's been about relationships for me. You shared tonight about abandonment issues. I heard, oh, yeah. you, I heard you loud and bright. Uh, I know about abandonment issues. Um, what's interesting is is that our recall and honesty changes the longer we're in the program, and my recall about abandonment is front and center. I know it's like Clancy's story about the Titanic, if I can throw that in. There's a man on the bow of the Titanic as the, as the ship is going down, the bow is up in the air, and people are on the, in the few lifeboats that they had, and some are in the water swimming away. And he's shouting at me, saying, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> and they're saying, what, what do you want? He said, I know what happened. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I know exactly what happened in my family of origin, why I have these issues that I have. Mm-hmm. And my sponsor, Johnny, in another program tells me, Martin, it's like an X on a pig. It doesn't go away. It's a brand. There's nothing you can do about it. It's genetics and traumatics. So when these situations would reoccur, let's say over this 29-year period, Mm -hmm. did you notice that in any way progress that you had made from one to the next to the next to the next? Yes. What did that look like? It looked like the time windows truncated, shortened. Yes, where it might have taken me 10 years to get over something, 50 years ago, it took me two years to get over something 30 years ago. Yeah. I can now shrink that down to a few months. That's a demonstration of a really well-worked program. You flatter me. Well, it's just what I perceive and what I notice. And what I think about you is none of your business. That's what they say, right? That's right. That's right. But but I, I get that because it's been that way for me, too. And I find that over the years... The things I do in AA get easier. They get they're they're more gratifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I started doing these interviews was because I just thought there's so many great stories around that you listen in a meeting, you hear five minutes of a guy's life, and usually he talks about the same things most of the time. Mm-hmm. But there are, there are different things that I hear in these longer interviews that put everything they say into context. So when the guy says something about something happened at such a point, I, I remember back. Oh, yeah, because I know that guy's story. I can really empathize in a different, perhaps deeper way. But, you know, what you're talking about, shortening the times, that has been very, very true for me. I find that I can get through things a lot a lot easier, not easier, let's say more quickly. And also knowing that it, there are certain places and people that I can share at a really deep level with. Right. That hasn't always been that way in my recovery. Right. I perceive you probably have the same thing. I do. In the last two years, I've I've met some, or I've allowed men into my life on a much deeper level, and I've shared things I never shared before yeah. about myself. It's extraordinary. Uh, I told my story up in uh, Crested Butte about six months ago mm-hmm. at a meeting, and I, and while I was going 
to the sh- to the share once again. You know, I I was thinking about what I was going to say, and I kept saying, "No, let God let the words come out. Let God let you speak. Don't rehearse, yada yada." And, but you know, you go backwards and forwards, mm-hmm. and I share things I never shared before, and I have recall talking about abandonment. I remember the first time my mother took me to daycare when I was maybe two or three years old. Mm-hmm. I remember screaming my lungs out, reaching my arms out, saying, Mama, Mama, Mama. I remember like it was yesterday. Johnny says it's the ex on a pig, and it's never going to go away. We just find new ways to improve our lives despite it. Well, there's that, but it also makes us all so unique in our own way and special. If we were all the same, I don't know what would happen. In some ways, you know, you have to look at it as a gift. Yeah. You know, for instance, should I ever meet a woman for permanence, I would probably tell her early on as I thought, well, she might fit for me. I might say to you, you might say to her, you know, Mary or Jill, whatever her name is, I want you to know something about myself that I do and I've never been able to deal with real well abandonment issues. Yeah. And what that feels like to me, if I was to call you and you weren't able to answer, but I left you a message, would it be okay for you to call me back, you know, within a couple of hours? Because if it went longer, I'd feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. The same applies to a text. And I want you to know that up front about me, huh. and it's not going to go away. Have you tried that approach? I have not. But I've been sponsoring another man in the program. And once again, when I say, Michael, when I talk to you, I'm talking to me. Because he has this issue about this girl he's been seeing who doesn't answer his phone calls. Uh. And I said, well, Mike, how do you feel when you pick up the phone? He says, very anxious. I say, how do you feel when you call me? He says, fine. I said, well, so you see there's a difference. He said, yes. I said, you really need to date a woman where you feel the same way calling her as you do me, which is at ease. And if you were to have that conversation and she wasn't to respect it, she's not for you. Hmm. I mean, all of us come to the table with different baggage. Some of this we can't do anything about. It doesn't matter how much therapy you do, how much sly you do, how much steps you work. You can pray to God. It's, it's going to help to take the edge off but it doesn't disappear them. Yeah, sometimes it's nothing more than a great distraction from thinking about yourself all the time. That's right. As we wrap this up, I wanted to ask you if you, Martin, with what you know today about yourself, about AA, about recovery, about life in general, if you could take that knowledge back to some point in your life and talk to the person at that point of your life who was you, what age would that have been and what would you say? Well... I probably say something along the lines that Martin and I think I've heard you I think Howard you used to say this in this meeting because mm-hmm. I had very good recall you used to say everything's all right already I remember you saying that because I've and I've given you I've referenced you I used to say Howard Howard L used to say this thing in inverted commas I would like to say to that little boy who was so anxious about everything is that everything's all right already and everything's going to be just fine. Hmm. Stop worrying so much about tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, this whole thing is an evolution. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think your question about what I, how I would have counseled the little boy or the kid growing up is very profound. And um, I would have said to him also, you know, your quest is emotional sobriety and would have explained to him what that would mean about living life with ease, being more at ease with life. And, um, you know, I heard an interesting definition at a conference on, on emotional sobriety, right, which is, and Bill Wilson wrote at great length about emotional sobriety in his letter to the grapevine and stuff because he was dealing with stuff beyond 12-step programs with depression. Anyway, so the definition is, and this is, this is very challenging, is when, when my thoughts about me match the facts about me, when there's congruence between my, with the thoughts about me and the facts, but when they're in alignment, that's emotional sobriety because we are always so damn hard on ourselves. Hmm. That's really beautiful. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have someone like that in my life at that age because mm-hmm. a lot of my early childhood experiences match up nicely, and we've talked about them before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's nice to know now that we have what we need now to be able to look back with a different perspective, like what you mentioned earlier about being able to look back and, you know, not wish to shut the door on it, but the regret about it is 
either eased or gone completely away. That's how it's been for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the kind of program you work, the, the, the men that you work with and the, and the work that you've done in AA, it shows up with you. And I think that that's, you know, there's nothing more important than a man who can be available for other men in the program. And I see that in you. And, and it's one of the things I love about you. And I love you. And you're, you're a good, trusted friend. I'm so glad that you were able to do this. Well, Howard, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I love you too. And that comes easy for me to say. And I trust you like I do the other men on my call list. And um, we, might, we might just be better than we think we are, just possibly. I think we probably are, but the last people we want to listen to is ourselves. It's dangerous. We talk to ourselves all the time. The problem is we don't listen to ourselves. Mm-hmm. We listen <laughs> to the wrong shit. <laughs> the wrong shit, of course. Inverted Mark, commas. Yeah, <laughs> thanks so much for that. And thank you for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. It's been a real joy being with you this evening. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Martin C., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, please share it with others. This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. If you want to contact me directly with any comments, questions, or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 